Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST 128, the Elliot Sharp album in the land of the Yahoos. We've had some tracks by Elliot Sharp on the pod before, but this is his first full length with us. And uh, man, I totally feel like I'm in the land of the Yahoos when I listen to this. And even better, we've got a special guest to explain this land to us, Brant. Yeah, the man himself, Elliot Sharp's on the podcast. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's not an album I've listened to before this show. And um, it's interesting hearing him talk about things like sound experimentation and his gear back then. It totally adds another level of appreciation when you listen to it for sure yeah big time yeah me too i hadn't heard this other than the no age stuff i had not heard this before either and i'm i'm sold man i like it a lot really yeah. i'm i mean it's good i'm surprised to hear you like it a lot though that's cool yeah right on do you uh do you have any spiels for the dudes and dudettes before we get going here into the land yeah i have a few okay so ryan I was scrolling around through YouTube and I happened upon this like 40 minute YouTube documentary called Roadkill, the story of Ben Stiller's teenage punk band, Capital Punishment. Yeah. Do you know what that is? I've not seen the documentary, but I know his, I know his band and they, uh, I can't remember what label it was like reissued the album in the last few years, right? Yeah. Captured tracks is the label. The, the main guy, from the label Mike Sniper is in the in the interviewed in the documentary and he describes capital punishment as a cross between Cabaret Voltaire, Pear Ubu, Chrome, a little bit of Bowie, and some industrial noise rock all combined. And I'd say that's pretty accurate. They all get interviewed in it. There's tons of footage of them, like a reunion show they played. There's a cool video that they made back in the day that has Jerry Stiller in it. Oh, Ben's dad, yeah. yeah. It's made by Pitchfork. It's a good, you know, it's only 40 minutes and it's worth your time. So it's good, eh? Yeah, well, the music's good. Like, I already knew the album, so. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. I've not even taken the time to check it out. It's worth checking out? I think so. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's interesting. It's pretty avant-garde. Um, He's a drummer in the band, right? Yeah. Is that he, right? He's a drummer. And like yeah. the story of how the captured tracks people found the record is super interesting too. Okay. Uh, what's the name of the doc again? I will check that out. Uh, Roadkill, the story of Ben Stiller's teenage punk band, Capital Punishment. Cool. I'm down. Okay. Here's some podcast related stuff. So this is all related to our Treacherous Jaywalkers episode, which I mean, we got one of the best reactions we've had in a really long time. People loved hearing from Josh Hayden. They loved the interview yep. and they love Treacherous Jaywalkers, man. Yeah, I'm telling you, they're in my my list with like Slovenly, Das Domin, Angst. TJs are in the list of long lost, forgotten, but must be revisited bands on SST. Yeah, they got a lot of love. So I think I read a, a review that I found somewhere. I think it was from something Josh gave me actually. And the, the zine was called butt rag. And we were, we were talking about whether it was, we thought it was Steve Albini. Right. So we heard from a few people, David Martin, friend of the pod messaged to say, 
Butt rag was Peter Margaisik. Peter is now better known as the journalist who relentlessly pursued the R. Kelly story. Peter put out a few records, including some by Repulse Kava, Ryan. Nice. Who always struck me as very SST damaged. Yep, and for then, sure. And then another listener, Mike Dixon, said, and I love this, he goes, SS tree alert, butt rag. <laughs> <laughs> butt rag was also a label and put out two Repulse Kava 7-inchers, which I think we've discussed before on the show. We definitely discussed... Um how Jack Bruder was on a Repulse Cava 7-inch, I thought, right? Yep. We got, I remember we got some inf- info from Joe Carducci on Repulse Cava. Because yes. the Jack Brewer one is called Major Punk Statement. And it, yeah, as Mike reminded us, it is the one and only release from Carducci Records. Yeah. Okay, here's the best stuff to come out of the Treacherous episode, though. One, Josh got up earth on Bandcamp, the the treacherous cassette yes 22 tracks originally released in april of 1986 it comes with a 25 page pdf with liner notes photos gig posters lyrics sounds way more hardcore yeah with with some cool mid-period flag influences i would say thrown in yeah the 25 page booklet is awesome it's got some, the liner notes are, that Josh did are current and they're really good. He's got it up for free on Bandcamp, but you can choose an op- option to throw him some money. I would suggest that you do. And it's awesome. And hey, maybe if enough people throw Josh some money, he'll get some more of this stuff up, like the other treacherous cassettes. Yeah, man. Time is money. Yep. And then this guy named Ed Gregor hit us up. He was a member of the Palisades Juvenile Delinquents. He oh, pl- you, you're <laughs> loving this. Oh, yeah. He played in Out, Alter Drown, Oblitosaurus, uh, Hedgehog, and he's been working on a website called pjdmusic.com. It's a bit of a work in progress, but there's already some amazing stuff up there, including like a a compilation of some of the stuff that he put up there. It's only seven tracks with some of some PJD bands, but there's a song on there by Out, which does not disappoint. You need to check it out. All right. Yeah. And that's the PJD version of Gone, right? Yes. Or kind inspired inspired by Gone. Yes. PJDmusic.com. Okay. On it. That's it. That's my spiel's for the week. Cool, man. Those are good ones. Yeah, what do you have? So, I've got an obsessed update for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it come it comes very, very circuitously though. Okay. How about that? Mm-hmm. Circuitously. Yeah. Check out the brain on Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on. So it's plague days, right? And so I, I'm digging through my my bookmarks that you know I come across something add to bookmark list and i got i came across um this one of henry rollins's radio shows that i had bookmarked a long time ago but you know probably a couple of years ago anyways but it's from 2012 and he's done a few of these since but it was his first one where ian mckay co-hosted right those guys are obsessed with the obsessed and and particularly wino okay 
now here's why this is an obsessed update that you probably know about but i just want to continue my obsession with the obsessed with this little podcast tidbit so their episode in 2012 they've done a few since they they did one where ian and henry basically describe their whole like black flags uk tour where ian is their roadie right and they play they play tracks like from the bands that they they played with like the damned and and stuff like that. Um, and then there is a, there's another one where Ian and Henry kind of co-host the show. Like when, when Ian's on the show, he kind of programs the music right. and the dude has, he's got really good taste, put it that way. No surprise there. But, um, the other one that I was listening to, they basically lay down some tracks for, all like from bands that Henry and Ian saw from 79 to like 80, 81 before Henry left for California. That's another episode. But this one, the one from um, 2012 was just like a mixtape by Ian. And he put on this track by a band called shine Brandt. Do you know shine? I don't think so. So shine is a band that wino formed in 1995 after the obsessed broke up okay and they released a seven inch um but then and it's not clear on on discogs and there's like nothing about them anywhere it looks like they put out a seven inch and a a cassette Hmm. now i bet you i bet you henry and ian were playing this off of mp3s that they've you know they transferred everything but the cassette is called power time from 1997 it appears I, i'm i want like our listeners to give us more info but dude um the single is called lost sun trance on Tolada records 1997 the cassette is called power time but um dude i liked the shine track and you should check that out okay well you should check out maybe some of this other wino stuff like his bands like the hidden hand or spirit caravan you might like some of that yeah, you know what? Like, I, I was totally thinking that because I gave Shrine Builder a chance and Shrine Builder had a bit too much growly vocals in it, I guess, for me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, that's the neurosis dudes like Scott Kelly or whoever, you know? Yeah, that's not really up my alley. But this, this, shri- this sorry, Shine is the band. This Shine track was awesome. Hmm. Um, and so I'm going to dig more deeply. I'm on the second Obsessed record. But I gotta I gotta go deeper and broader now with Wino. But here's the other part of my spiels that came out of this episode 2012. Ian Mackay guest programming on Henry's radio show. You can Google this, and it's all you like. It jumps out right away. Um, they played a track, um, "Ex Line Tamer" from Wire. Yep. You know that track? Uh, Jesus Lizard covered it, right? Mm, I don't. No, that is shocking to me if they did cover it. I know that Henry Rollins, like Rollins Band covered it, right? Mm, maybe I'm thinking of the song Wheelchair Epidemic. Somebody covers that song, Ex Lion Tamer. Maybe I'm thinking, like, Rollins Band covered it? Yeah. Cover it? Maybe that's what I'm thinking. It's actually on that Henrietta Collins and the Wife Beating Child Haters EP, Drive-By Shooting. They do oh, Ex Lion Tamer on that one. Right. So, anyways, they play Ex Lion Tamer. And it just, it kills when it comes up on the show. 
I'm loving it. And after that, they're both talking about how Pink Flag, the Wire album, is a a perfect album. And I totally agree. But I don't. You're not as much of a fan of Wire as I am. I think. Like, would you say that Wire Pink Flag is a perfect album? Are you that into it? I actually probably listen to One Five Four and Chairs Missing more than I listen to Pink Flag. Okay. So that's a mind blower, but that that's legit though too, because those are um, very, very good albums. Highly. I don't, I don't go much past that with Wire though, to be honest uh, with you. Like I have like, is it the A list? Is that the compilation of like some of the stuff that came after that? Yeah, there there is that comp. Um, I have that. I have like Read and Burn or like Red Red Bark Tree. That's an album, right? I have some yeah. of those albums that's, and they're good that's a way more recent one though red bark tree and that's a great album by the, the way scottish too. play is that a live album that is i have yep. that one yep. yeah so i have so i have a fair amount of wire you've got some good stuff some of their stuff in the 80s is not the greatest for me to be honest like it's just not yeah um but anyways i have the wire uh, book read and burn yes does that qualify good. me as a wire fan uh, mediocre. Okay. Me- mediocre. <laughs> Anyways, here, here's where I'm going with this. Okay. So they, they are talking about how Wire Pink Flag is a perfect album. And it is, it just is. And I was thinking, and then it got me thinking, so what other perfect albums are there? And I, I, I just, I, off the top of my head, I just wrote down 10 in a row. So it's not my last 10, but it's like, it's my, my first 10 perfect albums. But I also want them to be like, I want them to provoke you. Can there be 10 perfect albums? That seems like a lot of perfect albums. It kind of lowers the bar for perfection. No, no, no. Hang on. So when I wrote the 10 out, I go, okay, well, this is my first 10. There are more and none of them are SST records and there are perfect SST records like Rage and Full On for example that's a perfect record yeah agreed 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 okay yeah. so here we go i'm going to give you my first 10 perfect albums and i i want i want some brant rants to arise from this okay <laughs> i might not have any i might agree with all of okay, these here we go what guess what my first perfect album is that i want to list out for you Oh, something by Fugazi or No Means No or something. Close. It's actually the Wire album, Pink Flag. I was just talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the first one, okay? The second one, though, is No Means No, Wrong. Yep. Okay. Now, when I thought of No Means No, Wrong, it's actually kind of tied with 0 plus 2 equals 1. And why did they call me Mr. Happy? I was going to say Mr. Happy's up there yeah those are perfect albums the clash london calling perfect Mm, not for me give it to me give it to me okay well i i would i would choose give them enough rope over that one okay for me excellent here we go neither neither are perfect though oh okay (laughs) this is exactly what i'm into okay (laughs) gang of four solid gold came up yeah uh, it's just okay for me wow man not a mind blower for me brutal uh, but i mean it, i understand it's it is for a lot of people and I, I understand why just not for me 
Yeah. Well, everyone knows that, you know, they don't have as good a taste as you do. We all know that. Is there any metal in this list? Hang on, man. Here's my next one. The Damned Machine Gun Etiquette. Yeah, that's good. Perfect. That's up there. Perfect. Yeah. The Cramps, Songs the Lord Taught Us. Yeah, I like, uh, I've always liked the singles one. Bad, what is it? Bad Music for Bad People? Just because yeah. that's, the, that's the one I had first and it's just, that's a perfect album. Yeah, it's good. Maybe not as perfect as songs the Lord taught us. Next one, Frank Zappa, Chunga's Revenge. Perfect. Hmm. Okay. Perfect. It What's is, on that one? Oh man, like Transylvanian Boogie, Charlena. There's, hmm. there's, there's some, just some insane stuff on there, man. Um, That's not my go-to Zappa. So which I'll is your go-to your Zappa? Which is your go-to Zappa? Oh. The 70s stuff, like probably Apostrophe or Overnight Sensation or something like that. This is... Or uh, I really like that Live in New York one. Oh, really? That one's really good. Yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. Chunga's Revenge, though, has got like... Oh, man. Some some of the tracks on there. Uh, the song like Road Ladies. Um, the song Chunga's Revenge. I don't know. Anyways, 20 Small Cigars. Dude. Um... ACDC, Let There Be Rock. Well, you know I love Bon Scott era ACDC, but that I would put Powerage or... Uh, high Voltage? High Voltage, for sure, over that one. Wrong. It's actually Let There Be Rock. Next, the Melvins, <laughs> the Melvins Houdini. Mm, no, not. Okay, so which is your perfect one? That, that one's actually perfect, but go ahead. I would probably put the Maggot over that one. Really? Or nude with boot, or nude with boots, maybe even, or no, which one's the one I like? A senile animal, I think, is the one I like with the big business guys. No way, interesting. Yeah, Houdini's actually better than all those. And then finally, um, I think this dude Stoner Witch is better than Houdini. Mm, Stoner Witch is up there. It's part. It's part of the Atlantic trilogy. It's good, but it's but Lysol's better than Houdini. Houdini's better than all those. And then finally, uh, finally uh, bullheads, bullheads better than Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> Gluey porch treatments is better than Houdini. See, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Number 10 of my first 10. See how many other perfect albums there are? Faith No More, Angel Dust. That's my last. And eh, the real thing all the way. Better than Angel Dust. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Cause you know why? Do you know what, you know why it's better? Tell me why. Jim Martin, that's why. He's on Angel Dust too, man. I know, but they sidelined him on that yeah. one. He doesn't oh, get I... to riff out as much. Yeah, no, I agree. He's he's definitely not as prominent for sure, but he's got some, he still has got some deadly. He is the riffmeister, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have you ever listened to a solo album? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, he, he has like a version of Surprise You're Dead on there. Really? Really. Is it as riftastic as the one on the real thing? Not quite. Hmm. Not quite. But see, look at my first 10, perfect, you know, right off the top of my head. And there are so many other ones. Okay. I might have to give you my 10 perfect records. Please. I wish you would. Challenge. Challenge. <laughs> All right, man. Are you ready to get Fundamentia with me? History lesson. Part one. Okay, Ryan, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spiel on E-sharp, okay? 
Okay. And I got some spaceman waiting in the wings. Okay, good. So much of this I got from his excellent book, Irrational Music, which came out last year, 2019, on this uh, publishing company, Terra Nova. He wrote it by himself. It's really awesome. He has like just, in an, he, he really reminds me of Henry Kaiser. Just oh, like. Totally. Insane discography. It's musically, it is all over the place. It was like, we're going to be hearing from him soon here. I had a really hard time interviewing him because it was honestly, it's like, uh, where do you start? It's a little daunt. It's yeah. It's so daunting. So here's what I came up with. And this is like such a simplistic, uh, recap of, you know, to bring everyone up to speed to this record. So Elliot was born March 1st, 1951 in Cleveland, Ohio. In 1956, his family moved to White Plains, New York, where his father Bernard took a job at University Loudspeakers. In 1958, at age seven, he made his first visit to the plant where his dad worked as a sound engineer. And I'm just going to read you something from his book here that I, that I really liked. This is him talking about a trip to the, to the plant. I'd never imagined that music would become my life, but the exhilaration I feel being in the plant for a few short minutes is like escaping from my familiar world to an alien universe that I can't even begin to describe, only replay again and again. That night I dream about the punch presses, about the silent chamber. More than just the sensations or their organization, sound has become a mapping of the physical to the metaphysical, what I hear in the world translated to what I see in my inner ear and back again. Yeah, it really seems like, again, sound exploration was like just such an epiphany and a, a defining element of, of Eliot's like his life, right? Like it really was uh, very moving for him as he discovered stuff. Very interesting. Yeah. So this sets him off on a musical journey uh, that would encompass contemporary classical, improv, noise, no wave, jazz, rock, punk rock, avant-garde, using guitars, saxophones, and many, many offbeat instruments, many of his own devising, and all the while embracing electronics and technology. He attended Cornell University from 1969 to 1971, studying anthropology, music, and electronics. He completed his BA degree at Bard College in 1973, where he studied composition, improvisation, and ethnomusicology, and as well as physics and electronics. In 1972, he received an MA from the University of Buffalo, where he studied composition and ethnomusicology as well. He's released over 85 recordings, both solo and as a member of many different groups. Uh, he's released music on dozens of labels, including Dossier, Enemy Records, Homestead Records, Ryan. Yep. Uh, John, John Zorn's label, Zadik. Uh, his own Zor label that he started around 1978, Elliot's label. Like I said, Ryan, this is a very simplistic overview of a massive disco discography that I urge everyone to explore please check out his excellent book and uh, go to his website, elliotsharp.com to learn more about him. 
Here's a great thing by that I found by this guy at Piaro Scarufi. Hyperactive New York-based guitarist Elliot Sharp was perhaps the most incoherent experimentalist of his age, almost adopting a different technique for each recording. But his wildly more multiform activity came to symbolize the ultimate synthesis of dissonance, repetition, and improvisation. The three cardinal points of the classical rock and jazz avant-garde. Yeah, you know what Elliot Sharp plays, man? In in addition to the Pantar guitar, the that double neck guitar, uh, the Mirage. Uh, do you know what else Elliot Sharp plays, man? What? The fretless guitar, dude. Oh, I know. I know he does. Like, like, come <laughs> on. The fretless guitar. Yeah. That's insane. That's the definition of insane. Hey, Brant, before we go to Elliot, why don't I give you some Spaceman? Why don't you? Okay, here we go. This is, again, off the back of the No Age comp on SST. SST 102. Elliot has uh, a couple of tracks on here, uh, one of which is on this album in the land of the Yahoos. And this is what uh, Mr. Whitaker had to spiel for us back then. Elliot Sharp can be considered as much a theoretician as he is a musician. His long career has encompassed all forms of modern classical composition, a prodigy of sorts who is considered proficient on most every instrument. Elliot is one of the only modern-day performers who can be truly hailed as a composer. His work, both solo and as a member of various amalgamations, is known for its depth of construction and grasp of harmonic subtleties. Whether using conventional music notation or the Fibonaccian series, as he does in his compositions with the Soldier String Quartet, Elliot Sharp is a master of all the idioms at his command. The music that he has composed can be heard in most any retrospective of modern compositions. This is only the beginning. The song Diurnal is from the album Tessellation Row, SST 129, which we'll get to in next episode. And the song Shopping Mall, M-A-U-L, is from the album In the Land of the Yahoos. SST 128, this one. Yeah, man. Should we throw it over to Elliot then? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Elliot Sharp. Elliot, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Brent. So I'm wondering, Elliot, if you can take our listeners back to your childhood and how you, like your first, your kind of musical awakening. I have your book here, and it's a really interesting read, and talking about the inner ear and and kind of how you first got into sounds and music a lot of that was was through your dad yeah absolutely i mean my father was an industrial designer and when we first moved to new york from cleveland he was working at university loudspeakers and uh, the first time i went with him to the plant as they called it i was fascinated i think i was probably six or seven years old and uh, there was the, in the factory part of the space there were these huge punch presses stamping out speaker cones and then in the offices and laboratory there was an anechoic chamber this also echoes very much i don't know if you've read john cage's book silence where he talks about the first time he goes into an anechoic chamber and when i read that it really brought me back to this experience mm. of being in this 
absolutely non-reverberant, completely dead space. It was f- fascinating, kind of frightening in a way, because you, you're taken so much out of the normal world that you inhabit, the normal sound world that one inhabits. So there was that. There was my grandmother banging on pots and pans, and singing to try and get me to eat. You know, <laughs> that's another strong memory. I don't know if that's in the book or not. <laughs> Your dad's work, I think, kind of uh, helped you gravitate towards a love of electronics. Would that be fair to say? Well, yeah, absolutely, because I mean, he was very technical, and and I was also drawn to it. I loved, you know, as a child of the 1950s, so the idea of space travel was very intriguing. The house was filled with books on acoustics, and uh, you know, he, he was designing microphones and loudspeakers, so there was a lot of things right. about uh, how physical construction affects sound, and there was books of circuit diagrams of electronics, and I was an amateur radio operator. That brought me into electronics very directly, and I built radio equipment, and I would uh, communicate with fellow ham radio operators, mostly pretty banal stuff. Later on, uh, when I was in high school and getting more into sound and psychedelics and things, I would just listen to the shortwave bands for the sound of them. And that was uh, just a fascinating uh, dive down into a wormhole of abstract sound. Things that really had no way of describing. They sounded unlike anything else you might hear anywhere else. I mean, your book just it's just great for as far as like, you know, just spelling out all of your many, many influences that have come out in your music over the years. Talk to me a little bit about when you first started playing guitar and and why you wanted to start playing guitar. Well, probably because everyone else was playing guitar and a lot of the music I was listening to that I really loved was electric rock and the guitar was featured. I mean, hearing... Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds. I liked uh, some of the Rolling Stones things. You know, this was now in 1964-65. Anything with loud, fuzzy guitar was very exciting to me. And my father had a cheap nylon string guitar that I'd plunk on. It was pretty terrible. It was very unsatisfying. And I guess the summer of 1968, I'd gotten a National Science Foundation fellowship to be a junior scientist in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. University, and I had just gotten an electric guitar before I left for Pittsburgh. And uh, a lot of my time in the lab was spent experimenting with building fuzz boxes and playing with tape delays that we had there for time studies. And then that same summer, I became a DJ on the college radio station, WRCT. And it was an incredible time for contemporary music, for rock, for blues, I mean, everything, really, non-Western music. And the library was very well stocked, and I just, again, another wormhole fell down deeply. A lot of my time in the lab was experimenting. I, I couldn't really play very well. I could play a little bit on the guitar, but I could make noise, and I really had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. It was just uh, much more compelling to me than almost anything else I was doing at the time. When I got back to my parents' house after that summer. I mean, I had to deal with finishing my last year in high school, getting ready for university. And I would practice as much as I could. I had some very 
epiphanal moments when I would hook up all my pedals and just start making sound. And again, being taken to a place that I couldn't describe. And, and I, I knew it was something that I had to explore further. When I got to university, I was much more involved in studying music on my own and uh, playing with friends and hanging out and listening than I was in my to my studies. And although, I mean, I did... I did uh, take care of my responsibilities. I was studying anthropology and a lot of weird other things that were very incoherent if one stepped back and looked at a kind of you know master plan for education. I certainly had none at the time that I could really define. But uh, that was also okay in those days. You know, you really could explore things. It wasn't discouraged as much. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I tried to systematize my guitar studies. I, set myself up to study patterns and scales and chords. I knew enough music theory. I'd played piano as a child and I played clarinet and orchestra so I could read music. I could write music. I could understand, you know, the basics of it and just put together a systematic program for developing technique on the guitar because what I was listening to at the time, besides Jimi Hendrix and Captain Beefheart and blues, I was also listening to a lot of contemporary music, and listening to a lot more and more jazz, especially Bitches Brew by Miles Davis, which had just come out, and a lot of Ornette Coleman, a lot of Coltrane, Cecil Taylor. I mean, all of these things, you know, were, for me, uh, just like touchstones of uh, musical depth and knowledge. If I'm remembering right, you talk about Sonny Chirac as being a, a real revelation for you as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had found a Sonny Chirac record uh, in the discount bin at a local department store for 99 cents, the Monkey Pocky Brew record on BYG Actuel. And it looked incredible, and I brought it home. And the first side, he's kind of playing more slide whistle. I don't even think he's playing any guitar except towards the end. And then when you hear him, it was just this massive, like, sputtering, slithering, seething, uh, cacophony that I just thought this is incredible because you know, I, I certainly like the outer realms of what Jimi Hendrix was doing and Beefheart and a lot of the other psychedelic guitar players and Jerry Garcia and in, when I first got to university I saw that Sonny was going to be playing in the Herbie Mann group and a friend and I hitchhiked down there they were opening for the Pacific Gas and Electric Company and hearing Sonny was a revelation hearing what he did especially in that room where he just filled it was such incredible sounds. So that was like 1968. I met Sonny for the first time in 1980. I'd moved to New York in 1979. And he was playing material, Bill Laswell's band. And uh, so I was talking to Sonny for a bit. And I had seen him a couple of other times actually around. But it was the first time I got a chance to talk to him. We later became very good friends, played together a number of times in Europe and Finland and Austria used to hang out a lot uh, in New York because the record label I was on in the late eighties, early nineties enemy records was publicized by a woman who was a good friend of mine. She would have soirees and there'd be an amazing cast of characters hanging out at these soirees, the film director, Melvin Van Peebles, and Sonny Chirac and uh, Calvin Bell, Jean-Paul Borelli, Mark Rebeau would come over, Gary Lucas. I'm leaving out many. It was really Dougie Bowne, 
Yuka Honda. Just an amazing cast of characters. <laughs> Always entertaining. Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts in your book when you when you do move to New York. I believe around 78, 79? 79, I moved there, yeah. yeah. It seemed like you maybe finally found <laughs> your tribe when you moved there. Just so many amazing musicians and so many little pockets of scenes going on. Well, absolutely. You know, you try to find a place where you'll feel at home and you resonate. And I used to come down to the city when I was in high school. I'd hitchhike down and just wander around. And if I had the money, I'd go to the Fillmore East. And, you know, I saw a number of incredible gigs there. But the city at that time was pretty uh, grungy. You know, a lot of uh, heroin addicts in the Lower East Side. It was really fairly dangerous and uh, just pretty disgusting. I, I wanted a more relaxing and rural ambience at that time. So I was living upstate in Ithaca, New York, going to university there and at Bard College. And then all of a sudden I realized so much of the music that I resonated with was coming out of New York. And in 1978, I was living in Western Massachusetts, brought there because Marion Brown and Archie Shep and Michael Gregory Jackson were all living there. And there was a little scene developing. I thought, well, this might be a good place. And still, New York was it, you know, and, and so at a certain point I said, yep, I'm doing it, and I moved down. Because we're an SST podcast, I have to ask you about something you mentioned in the book. You're hanging out, out at a club, I think, called the A7 Club, and you mentioned, oh, yeah. you mentioned jamming with HR and Earl from Bad Brains. Right, exactly. Well, I was in a band called Crazy Hearts, which is this kind of psychedelic punk band led by a woman named Victoria Vesna who's now a very respected academic in terms of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, uh, eco... What's, I, I don't even think I can describe exactly in one easy word what her realm of knowledge encompasses, but it's uh, very vast. So she was the singer, and there was a synth player and a drummer, and I was the bass player. I was playing a regular Fender jazz bass and playing a fretless guitar, and then Earl from Bad Brains was hanging out, and Daryl was hanging out a lot, and HR was playing drums in Crazy Hearts, actually, before Mike played drums, that's right. HR was playing drums, and I think Earl was playing guitar, normally the drummer from Bad Brains. <laughs> right. and, and, and that scene at A7 Club was very freewheeling, you could say. There was a lot of strange characters hanging out there you never knew what to expect or who you're going to run into or uh, have an interaction with. I was, I was playing a solo set one night and this guy got up on drums and he was kind of bashing away. I said, Hey man, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to do something here. If you hope you he said, Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So he, and I, so I went over to him at the bar after my set and I said, Oh, you know, I'm really, I'm really sorry. You know, I just, you know, was, I wanted to do this solo thing. And, you know, I didn't mean to. And he said, oh, no, it's okay. I really dug what you're doing. And by the way, I'm Wayne Kramer. I said, Wayne Kramer, I didn't recognize you. You know, I mean, I, you know, I loved Wayne's playing in the MC Pod. You know, I loved a lot of his solo stuff. So we had a laugh about that. I feel like maybe the two comps you did on Zor, Peripheral Vision and State of the Union, would you say those are a bit of a representation of that, the scene at that time that you were Absolutely. a part of? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, State of the Union is, is not just New York. It's just various people I met through correspondence and the whole kind of coast cross-coastal avant-garde scene. And it was much more in the realm 
of experimental music, if I could use that term, which I don't really like. Whereas a peripheral vision was absolutely about the bands inhabiting the Lower East Side at that time. So it was almost like an, an ethnomusicological document. So at this point, you're starting to do Carbon. Would you say that was, was there some punk rock influence going on there? Well, certainly the intensity of it, although the idea of the band was much more an extension of what I had been doing. This guy, I mean, I had this idea I wanted to make a music that had a psychedelic component because I'd, I mean, I'd always loved playing in uh, the more acidified rock bands, yet I wanted that kind of punk rock energy. And a lot of the people that I enjoyed hanging out with and speaking with who were both have keeping one foot in the experimental music scene and the art music scene, but we're also very much a part of the hardcore scene. That was where the energy was, and so that's where we were hanging out. And so that music kind of resonated there, especially at the A7 Club, because Dave, the owner of the club, liked what I was doing. He just gave me every Tuesday night as a lab, so I would invite people down to play people from the improvising scene, and I was also very involved in that. So I'd invite improvisers, I would invite rock musicians, you know, people who are playing more standard rock, people from the experimental and art scene, uh, punk musicians, jazzers, you know, especially a lot of the international jazzers that I'd met uh, through Studio Henry, where there was a lot of improvising. So it was really a, a kind of cross-genre scene. And it was a place where anything could go, and especially because the club opened at 1 a.m., I mean, was, there was really no great pressure. You know, it was always a small place. It was always full. There was always interesting characters there. You know, it was very conducive to experimentation, cross-fertilization. And with this project, you kind of started doing some of your first real touring, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we got invited to do... Well, I, well first my first tour in Europe... First, I went to England in 1982 solo and played with different musicians there with Paul Burwell and Terry Day with Daniel Dax from the Lemon Kittens with this band, the Mothman. And then recommended records in Switzerland organized a tour of the band of V-Effect who were on peripheral vision and uh, myself solo. And we played all over Europe. And so I made a lot of connections there and that led to a lot more touring and a lot of and festival invitations. It really opened the door to a lot of things, record labels. It was really a, kind of a very uh, active scene at the time uh, between the labels and the venues, especially these uh, cultural institutions in Europe, you know, funded by whether local communities or by the national government. They wanted to promote culture. They understood how important it was. And so you could really play these youth centers and small galleries and cultures, cultural spaces and make a living from it and meet a lot of great people and have your music be very well received. I met a lot of musicians doing that, a lot of artists that I'm still in touch with. Tell me about the Virtual Stance project that you did. Well, I had gotten... I, I, had a, I was a big sci-fi fan as a kid. In 1984, I read Neuromancer, and it completely blew my mind. And, you know, I hadn't really thought... There, there were a couple of predecessors to it in terms of uh, cyber sci-fi, like A Shockwave Rider by John Byrne. But 
neuromancer was such an incredible vision, so complete that uh, I was sucked in. You know, I, I like to talk about these wormholes, you know, that right. grabbed me. And that was a big one. I mean, I had no money at the time. And I'd gotten a small grant in 1985, and I bought a personal computer. I bought an Atari ST, which was one of the first personal computers geared towards musicians. It had built-in MIDI ports. There was no audio editing at the time, but right. after about a year or so, DigiDesign put out their first audio editing program for the Atari ST. It was called Sound Designer, and that later, of course, expanded into Pro Tools. So when I started working with it and working with the sampler, the Mirage, which was like kind of the first low-cost sampler, I, I saw a lot of possibilities opening up for making music outside of the physical realm, you know, working with samples, stretching them way beyond their normal ranges, you know, and finding that they revealed all kinds of landscapes, kind of alien melodic material, microrhythms, uh, textures, and it, it just seemed to be an important direction to go in, especially because it resonated so completely with my interest in sci-fi. So the first virtual stance record was a set of pieces done with uh, the Atari ST and samplers and drum machines. I began to do live gigs with that setup. I had interfaces so I could play my bass clarinet and guitar into the computer and manipulate the sequences that were happening that I was playing using the software. And I have to say a couple of my SST gigs at the time. I mean, SST at the time was very receptive to what I was doing. I got signed to SST in 1986. Uh, Greg Ginn called me up one day and said, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. Do you want to uh, make some records? Do you have anything? And so I suggested in the land of the Yahoo's, I had two recording projects that I just finished that I was looking for outlets for, and that was in the land of the Yahoo's and Tessellation Row. Tessellation Row being a set of string quartets that were using the principles that I was working on from fractal geometry and chaos theory and Fibonacci numbers. And in the land of the office, it was kind of social commentary. The title comes from the Jonathan Swift book, Gulliver's Travels. And I enlisted the help of various vocalists, uh, Christoph Anders from the group Kassiber. He was, Kassiber uh, was a group a group based in Germany with Chris Cutler on drums and Heinrich Goebbels on keyboards and uh, Alfred Harris on horns. And uh, Christoph and I became very good friends, so he joined me in vocals. Elizabeth Fisher from this punk band from Vancouver, The Animal Slaves, that I had collaborated with. Susan Dehim, the Iranian singer. Uh, Susan Shelley Hirsch, the great improvising singer. And I, I did a lot of samples using vocals and Christian Marclay the turntable pioneer was on it. So that was a bit of kind of social comedy. I, I also sang on the record. I think it was my first time singing on record in a long time, which met with varying responses from horror to amusement. <laughs> and um, so Greg was into it and uh, he released both those records. And through SST, through him, I began to go out to LA a lot and do shows there. And the SST shows, were fantastic because the SST audience was incredibly loyal and open. I mean, my string quartet 
record probably sold like 8,000, 10,000 copies, you know, for, for, kind of, wow. for contemporary music, that's absurd, especially for string quartets, you know, no but the, the kids who, on, who listened to SST had this kind of permission. If it was on the label, then it must be cool. And they listened to it and they listened with open ears as it should be. And, you know, it, it really felt great. And it really felt that I'd found a home there and a residence. And, uh, you know, I'd go out there and stay at Greg's house and we'd hang out a lot, drive around, jam at his house, go to shows. And it was a special time. Did you bond at all over your uh, shared interest in electronics and your ham radio history? Did you guys talk about that? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, we we definitely talked about electronics. And also Greg was a big jazz hound, which I kind of intuited from his playing on those Black Flag records because they really had this kind of strange sort of, if you could almost call it swing to them. I mean, I really liked his guitar playing. And uh, no, we, we had a lot to talk about. What would have been some of the some of the SST shows that you would have played? Like, who, who would you have been paired up with? Well, what happened was there was, I don't remember if it was an SST show or it was some CMJ show or a new music seminar show in New York at the Ritz in mm-hmm. like 1987, I would say. Anyway, Mike Watt, I was in the dressing room hanging out and Mike Watt walked in and he came up to me and started singing in the land of the Yahoo. So, I mean, I was thrilled because I loved the minimum. I, I saw <laughs> their first gig in New York. It might've been their only gig in New York. There were the Wayne Horvitz's band, the president opened for them. And I wasn't in the band at, this, at that time, but I was friends with everyone in the band. And so there were the five of them, my girlfriend and myself in the audience and the Minutemen, mm-hmm. the three of them on stage. And, uh, <laughs> But no, no, I loved that band so much. I, I was just shattered. Boone was killed. So Watt was, at, I think, you know, Firehose might have been opening for Sonic Youth at that show. And uh, Mike came up to me and, you know, sang in the land of the hours, And I, I was just thrilled and started talking. I asked him if he wanted to play together. So he said, absolutely. So I talked to Greg about the idea and I was coming out to LA and, and, the plan was we would do some shows where the headliner would be Firehose. I would play a solo set, and then I would do a bootstrapper set, which was my kind of generic band name for an improvising rock trio with George and Mike. And they, and much to my surprise, they were not really improvisers. I mean, they were great players. And the Minutemen had this sound that I thought used a lot of improvisation, but it was really very carefully worked out. So this was a surprise. They were a little bit hesitant, if not terrified at improvising, but pretty much got into it uh, with a passion, I would say. Oh, yeah. And so we so we did these shows. And we recorded a couple of the shows live, and then we went into this uh, studio in Torrance, California. What was it called? It was where the, where uh, Chaka Khan recorded Tell Me Something Good. Oh, well, yeah, we had we had a great session. And you know, so we played these shows, and we played a bunch of shows. We did some shows in the Valley. We opened for Joe Satriani at the Palomino Club. That was pretty wild. <laughs> that was like a near riot. That's funny. So uh, in the land of the Yahoos, how would you have been sourcing a lot of these samples? Just from playing around in the studio, really. I mean, I would play all my instruments into the sampler and then just see what happened if I time stretched them or played around with the attack, if I did filters, if I pitch shifted them. 
I would go on the radio and collect sounds or on television because there's just so much ridiculousness on television, needless <laughs> to say, that I found a lot of useful material there. No kidding. And then it, then it was a question of trying to find a musical context for it. A lot of it involved looping, and then I would hear a rhythm that would be implied from the loop, and then I'd find a way to create a drum program with a drum machine that would interlock with that rhythm or maybe play something live with other samples that would then interlock with it or reinforce it. A lot of playing. I mean, it seems like I had a lot more time in my hands. You know, now when I'm composing, I have a lot less time these days, it seems, so I try to go directly. It's more a question of hearing it in my head and then going directly to the score or the output rather than experimenting. But in those days, I would, I would just experiment and see what happens when we do this. Right. Were you able to perform this stuff live? I know, and maybe you could explain this to me. I feel like you were able well, to was, uh, trigger some of these samples from your, your guitar. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that was a big part of it. I had a MIDI set up on the guitar. It was pretty primitive in those days, uh, the MIDI triggering. But, you know, I, you know I'm a tinkerer, so I, I liked experimenting with it, and I had support the uh, IVL company, the pitch writer. I had an endorsement with them, so they would give me equipment and cost. And, you know, I would just try and find ways to make it work. You know, if it didn't give you complete rhythmic accuracy, well, then you would work around it and find a way to do something that was musical with it. And so, you know, I was, you know, triggering these voice samples and samples I'd make of my own guitar, like I could have a very long convoluted guitar riff backwards and trigger that from the guitar so I could play a line on the guitar live and when I would hit certain notes that would trigger the MIDI samples so it would augment my guitar playing uh, almost like having a, a looping delay right so it, I mean it was, it was a constant process of experimenting and trying trying to get it right sometimes the getting it wrong made it more musical rather than <laughs> getting it right <laughs> right do you think this album could be produced today? Sure, it would be different because you know there's a certain it was a certain uphill battle to get these. Do you mean to have it released or to make it both? I suppose. Well, you know the the, the electronics, the digital platform has evolved so exponentially that everything is a lot easier to do things we couldn't even dream of doing. You know, my first computer, my Atari ST had one megabyte of RAM, and it ran at a processor speed of, I think, 16 megahertz, no, even less, 8 megahertz. So to do anything took forever. My first Mac had a 16 megahertz processor and 16 megabytes of RAM. I mean, compared to what we have now, my first hard drive was 640 megabytes. It weighed like 20 pounds, <laughs> you know, and it cost me you know, half a year's wages. But I could master an entire album on one hard disk, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, to, to process sound, to, to do a pitch shift of a one-minute sample would take 20 minutes. I mean, my coffee consumption went up exponentially, <laughs> too, directly proportional to the amount of time it took to do the processing. So now it's much easier to do. But at the same time, the sweat equity is missing. I think there's something about making everything very difficult that makes it more intense, you know. I mean, I, I hope it don't sound like sort of some sort of Puritan about this, but I do believe the amount of work you put into something is directly proportional to the intensity of the output. 
for sure. And uh, and so now, I mean, conceptually, you can go far beyond what you ever might have imagined. But in terms of the the work to create the sound, it's a, it's a, just a different planet. You know, I mean, better or worse, maybe we can't say. You know, because you if you judge it, you might find yourself uh, eating your words. Because I mean, things are continuously in flux, and you know we can't. The returns are not all in, so we might have very valid criticisms of why things may be seen as going in a very, very wrong direction. Or we might have very positive uh, deductions from how things are going. I'm reading this book by Hariri now, 21. I'm terrible at titles. 20 prescriptions for the new century. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm very critical of it. I think he's one of these rah-rah boosters of algorithmic approaches in digital technology. I mean, I was a big fan of using algorithms, but I don't let them rule me. You know, you, you let the algorithms work in concert with him. He calls it a centaur. And, uh, you know, again, there's something to be said for that, and there's something to be held in reserve. I suppose we have a, a slight indication of what this album might have sounded like later on because there's a trilogy yes absolutely well doing the last record the uh radio hyper yahoo was making full use of digital technology in my studio in a home studio stuff i couldn't have imagined doing at home back in the day when i had a primitive four track cassette or even earlier than that when i would just dub between two cheesy cassette decks Right. You know, the other thing about the intensity of recording in the old days, if I may use that term, was that if you had limited resources, I, I mean, I'd save every penny so that I could go into the studio for four hours. So I'd <laughs> go into a real studio for four hours and record. And you had to have everything very well rehearsed and you had to have everything very tight to make best use of your limited resources. And now with computer technology, I can I have the luxury of experimenting as much as I want. I mean, what I'll still do is go into a studio to record drum tracks, or if I want to start with a live ensemble, I'll do that in, you know, a quote-unquote good studio working with an engineer that I like. And, and it's worth it. You get things that you can't get in any other way. Right. Well, that approach is well represented on this album. It was recorded in, I think, four different studios? Yeah. I'm assuming that had more to do with, as you said, just I have some money now so I can go back in and, and work on this record some more. Well, there's that and also compiling parts, you know, compiling to like maybe I had a drum track that I used for another production and maybe oh, I see. it was something that was released, maybe not. But I'd say, well, this drum track is really good and I can process the drum track, you know, maybe by pitch shifting it or taking sections of, and looping it, making samples from it. And then it becomes a completely new drum track that I can then use in a new song. I understand. You know, you hear implications in these various uh, uh, kind of component parts. They can they can open send you down new directions that you didn't you couldn't have imagined when you did the original parts. Was the majority of the album worked on with Martin BC at BC Studio? No, I'd say about maybe half of it. No, about a third of it, and then I did. I mean, let's say half. I'm, I'm trying to uh, think of the tracks and divide them up. I did part of it at Martin's. I did part of it at uh, Ma uh, Michael Beinhorn, who was in the band Material and later uh, became a very well-known producer with the Chili Peppers and a lot of other things. Had a little studio around the corner 
from me on St. Mark's Place. So I did some tracking there, and I did some tracking at a little studio called 6-8 Studio, which is still in existence. Oh. An 8-track place at the time. Okay. Yeah, so it's all divided up between those those rooms. And the sound, and then I the trick was also matching up the sound from the different tracks to each other. Right. And I did final mixing so that it felt somewhat coherent. So for the songwriting on this, there are some co-writes. Would that have been yeah. like yeah. the vocalist, just you giving them free reign to come up with their own lyrics? Yeah, definitely. Because I, I gave them a theme that this notion was some sort of uh, cultural criticism. And I would have some of the basic parts prepared in advance, like a drum track or for Elizabeth Fisher's song. I had the drum part and the guitar and bass parts prepared in advance and sent them to her on a cassette, I think. And then when she was in town, oh no, I was in Vancouver doing a gig and we did her vocals there at a studio there. At, uh, oh, Demolition Sound. Yes, I guess so. The engineer was working with this band. Was it Skinny Puppy? Yep. I think it was, he was the engineer for Skinny Puppy. All right. That's a mind blower. And if I'm not mistaken, Brant, the third episode in a row where Ornette Coleman has come up, we've got some conceptual continuity going on here. <laughs> yeah, we kind of do. Yeah, man. A few things for me from the interview. I like it when he says he's talking about SST and he goes, if it was on the label, then it must be cool as like the mindset of the people who were buying this stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's good to hear. For sure, man. Yeah. Hey, that's why I bought that Treacherous Jaywalkers record. Yep. He talks about uh, his psychedelic punk band, Crazy Hearts. The drummer in that band, Ted Parsons, it seems like it was maybe his band. He drummed in the first version of Swans. He was in the band Fetus. He was he played in Prong, Godflesh. He's played with Bill Laswell, Buckethead of Cabbages and Kings. That dude's prolific too. Yeah. And you can hear that band Crazy Hearts on the compilation we mentioned, Peripheral Vision, which is on Elliot's Zor Records. And that's insane too. There's these bands on there like V Effect. The Scene Is Now, coupled by Crazy Hearts, ISM, which is an Elliot Sharp project, Mofungo, who has an, at least one album on SST, yeah, man. and Elliot, Elliot later became involved in, a band called The State, The Ordinaires, and The High Sheriffs of Blue, which is another band Elliot played in. And I would recommend tracking that down and checking it out for sure. And I don't think it's on the Bandcamp page, but there is a Zor Records Bandcamp page. That's worth checking out. There's a ton of Elliot stuff on there, including this album, by the way. Are there any extra tracks for this record? No. Okay. You want to start talking about the record? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Ryan, a few things here about the record. He talks in the interview about the title of it coming from uh, Jonathan... Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. So here's what I found about, I've never read that book, but here's what I found. In that book, yahoos are legendary beings in the 1726 satirical novel, Gulliver's Travels. 
Their behavior and character representation is meant to comment on the state of Europe from Swift's point of view. The yahoos are primitive creatures obsessed with petty stones that they find by digging in mud, thus representing the distasteful materialism and ignorant elitism Swift encountered in Britain. Hence, the term yahoo has come to mean a crude, brutish, or obscenely coarse person. Now, Elliot mentions in the interview that this much of this record is his attempt at social commentary. And here's a thing I found uh, from an interview with Elliot around 2003 from Bomb magazine by this guy Mike McGonigal. He says, Elliot says, there are various ways of being political. Sometimes I'll compose commentary or reaction to specific events or actions. An approach I favor involves encoding pointers to be followed and investigated. These take the form of actual musical materials and extra musical materials in the form of samples or references in titles. Hmm. And he specifically cites the track Free Society off this album as an example of, of this approach. So I thought that was interesting considering, you know, he mentions it a few time in the, times in the interview that this was, you know, a form of social commentary for him, yep. this album. Yep. And that he was, he would, you know, give the vocalists some, you know, general guidelines about what the song is intended to do as part of that, um, part of that social commentary, hey? Yeah. So this was released on SST in 1987 on LP, CD, and cassette, and it also came out on Dossier in Germany on LP only. History Lesson, Part 2. So we start with the title track, In the Land of the Yahoos, written by Elliot Sharp. We've got a few few people playing along on this one. Jane Tomkowitz, she plays Ben Deer and Clay Drum. I had to look both of those up. A Ben Deer is a handheld wooden frame drum played predominantly in North Africa. Clay drum is a percussion instrument that looks a little bit like a bong. There's no other vocalist listed on this track, so I'm assuming it's Elliot. And it's a pretty far out vocal track too. Yeah, this is the one that Mike Watt was, he mentions that Mike Watt was singing to him, hey? Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of picture that, hey? Oh, for sure. All right, track two, Free Society, written by Elliot Sharp. This one, Ryan, do you you know that NBC show Night Music, which was hosted by David San Sanborn? We've talked about it before for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. There is a clip on YouTube of Elliot playing this song, and he he gets a there's a brief interview beforehand. He says this track features special guest lead vocalist Pat Robertson, who is like a televangelist and a Republican presidential candidate. That's <laughs> yeah. who gets sampled in this song. Yeah. It's got some funky bass for sure too. I, I really dig the bass when it comes in. I'm like, oh, dude, that's good. Yeah. That performance man like sold me on Henry Kaiser though. Like you have to see it, man. Number one, the guy rivals Henry Kaiser for like an insane guitar collection some of which he builds himself. He's playing his double neck guitar on on this. He plays with his fingers. He doesn't use a pick as far as I can tell. He's tapping like all over the neck on the bass, on the six string. 
very percussive playing, almost like a, you know, like a Les Claypool or something. Oh yeah. And he's he's triggering the samples of Pat Robertson by playing the strings. It's really weird. And and it's so cool to watch. David Sanborn, of course, sits in on sax. It it's just a phenomenal performance. Who is um is there someone playing the uh the Miles like uh, trumpet part? Not trumpet, but Sanborn's going crazy on the sax. Okay, right on. Yeah. This track has uh Paul Guerin credited as Pat Rewinds. I'm assuming that's a reference to tape manipulation of the Pat Robertson right. track, maybe? Yep. But then again, if you watch this performance, like he's triggering those samples of Pat Robertson by playing the strings. It's it's really interesting to watch. Hmm. Okay, track three, Fundamentia, written by Sharp and Suzanne Deheim. I'm probably getting some of these names wrong. I think he mentions all their names or most of them in the interview, so... Uh, this one has Shigato Kamada on drums also, and Susan on vocals. She's an Iranian-born composer and vocalist, performance artist, and activist. Insane vocal performance from her on this. Reminds me of, like, Steven Tyler doing some sort of Tanya Tagak-style Inuit throat singing, maybe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The sample in this, every time I hear it, makes me think of a little kid crying, you know? Yes. When they're... <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh yeah, no, when, they're, try, when they're trying to catch their breath or something. <laughs> it has some serious wailing vocals on it for sure. Yeah, yeah, I love the drumming in this song too, but I couldn't find anything about Shigato, the drummer. Track four is "La La Love," written by Sharp, Marclay, and Fulton. It's got Elliot on sax, David Fulton on electric drums, Christian Marclay on turntables. Christian has had quite the career he's performed with john zorn the chronos quartet sonic youth yeah he must he must be playing the elvis on this track hey yeah i kind of get the impression that he's like a he was like a turn turntable pioneer maybe a little yeah bit. well i'm pretty sure i mean correct me if i'm wrong but this is the first time we have seen anyone play the turntables on an SST release so far. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I think so. Okay, maybe on... No, that's. I was going to say maybe uh, Paper Bag, but they were mostly tapes, I think. Oh, you're right too. It might have been Paper Bag. Yeah, good if call. anybody did it, it would have been them, maybe. Yeah, good call. Okay, track five, Sink or Swim, written by Fisher and Sharp. This one is awesome. This is one of my favorites. Cool industrial vibe to the backing track, and the vocal is amazing. I need to know more about this band, Animal Slaves, from Vancouver. Oh, I've got both their records. Do you? Yeah. You can. This is Elizabeth, this is Elizabeth Fisher from that band, singing yeah. on this one. Yeah, we can check it out when you're here next time, for sure. There, It's it's pretty awesome. common up here. You can find them for like 20 bucks a pop. They, mm -hmm. It's super, super art, arty stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the last track on side one, Station Break, written by Elliot. This one is like a one-minute interlude. I think that's why it's titled maybe Station Break. 
some deep bass grooves on this one. And then we flip it over and we have Gullah Gogo, written by Elliot. Jane Tomkowitz again on Bendir and Clay drums. Love the percussion on this one. And the main melody is super catchy on this one too. It's almost seven minutes long, kind of a hypnotic groove effect. I was just going to say it's it's like a trance, the trance-like type of song. Yeah. The one sample on this sounds like the sound my cat makes when it when he th- <laughs> is pretending to have a mouse in his mouth. Like we have like these toy mouses. Yeah. It's the exact same sound. Cat people will know what I'm talking about. The <laughs> album that came out right before this, which we talk about in the interview, Virtual Stance, which came out on that dossier label. It's kind of a precursor to this album, which is kind of why I was bringing it up. I kind of feel like it set him up to make this album a little bit. Ah. Uh, it's really good. And he uses the the same effect, like the same sound sample on that record to great effect on the title track there. I'm assuming it's the Mirage because he plays the Mirage on that record too. All right, then track two is called Ross 10, written by Anders and Sharp. Shigato Kamada again on drums. Christoph Anders on voice and Mirage. Christoph has a lengthy discography also. It looks like a lot of it is German stuff. This one's cool. It has a unsettling vibe in a good way. I thought this one wouldn't sound out of place on the Pill album Flowers of Romance. It's very percussive like a lot of the stuff on that record. Oh yeah. Track three on side two, Ornament and Crime, written by Hirsch and Sharp. Shelley Hirsch uh, does the vocals here. She's a New York vocal artist. New York Times called her a woman of a thousand voices. Sounds like she's sampled here, but also performing live over the track. There's no real music accompaniment here. It's one of the more avant-garde tracks on the album, for sure. Yep. Then we go to Shopping Mall, written by Elliot. This is the one we heard on the No Age comp. I'm not sure I loved this on that one. It's better here, I think, in the context of this album, maybe. This one's mostly Mirage, I think. Yeah, I seem to remember liking Shopping Mall... Yeah, I think you did. I think you liked it more than I did. Okay, track five, Ratnap. This is the last one, written by Elliot. Shigato Kamada, again, back on drums. Elliot's guitar playing is kind of featured on this one. The guitar tone, to me, sounded a lot like Albini's tone that he has in, like, Big Black. I see. Yep, I can hear that. Heavy percussion, again, going on here. Cool ender, for sure. Again, Ryan, I think we talk about this in the interview. This is part of a trilogy. He did two more albums. Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Yahoos, 1992, and Radio Hyper Yahoo, 2004. And here's a little note that I left for myself, Ryan, that I forgot to mention. We also talk about the bootstrappers in that yes. interview, and I, I, I listened to that record. So I bought that probably 25 years ago because it has George Hurley and Mike Watts' names on the cover. No idea who Elliot Sharp was. I probably was not ready for it that time. And it's, I don't, it's probably been 20 years since I listened to it, to be honest with you. It's awesome, man. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've listened to it. I remember borrowing it off you and not 
being that um, that impressed. I remember for sure. You have so, you have it though, right? I do. It's time to listen yeah. to it again, though. Throw it on, man. It's good. There's some dub stuff on there. Doesn't Mike it's, Watt play? Does Watt play that bass with rubber band strings on that record? Is that the one? Maybe. Hold on. I th- I'm pretty sure he plays that on a Sacron Trust record, but also on this one, I think. It doesn't say anything for credits about what he plays. Oh, gosh. I could have sworn he plays a rubber band bass on the Bootstrappers. Now I have to listen to it again. It's a good record. Why, why do I think that? Maybe the Central Scrutinizer will, uh, will correct on. me on let that. Me, let me see if there's an insert. I don't think there is. Is that one on... New Alliance, too? Like, it's not on SST, right? New Alliance. Right. I might be getting my rubber band bass albums mixed up. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't too worried about it. You sounded super concerned. Hey, here's a quick review from Trouser Press. This is Sharp's self-described pop album, meaning that he and others sing, his guitar and bass are toned down, and their percussion is almost normal. An amazing LP with more variety than many of his others. It explores numerous textures and moods, dishes out surprises at every turn, and displays a witty sense of humor. You want to talk about the cover art? Hey, speaking of the bootstrappers, have you ever checked out their other album, Gygo? No. They've got another album, Gygo. I've seen it before. I've never bought it because, again, like that first one didn't blow me away, but we should probably check out Gygo as well. I don't think Watt and Hurley are on that one, though. Oh, no? I don't think they are. That's. I'll still check it out. Should we talk about the cover art, Ryan? Yeah, man. It looks like a lino cut to me. Yeah, the, kind the of. The main picture. The CD version is red and blue instead of yellow and blue. And the dossier version is is kind of laid out differently. Yeah, it's an interesting color palette. Like, mine isn't really yellow it's it's like a beige with a teal on front on the front like the lp um it's it it's a real interesting contrast with this lino cut image some guy sitting on the top of a hill it looks like he's got like his fedora next to him looking down there's a train beneath him and then this industrial city uh before him with all of this uh, smoke spewing out from all of the factories and buildings beneath him. Well, I think that's Elliot. Possibly, except the only thing that gives me a bit of pause on that is it seems as though this fellow has hair, but, you know, whatever. Elliot had hair. Elliot had hair at one point. Well, everyone has hair at one point, man. Sorry, good that point. was too easy. That was good too point. easy. I know that's a good point. <laughs> All right. I, I like the little photo of Elliot that on the back there playing that double neck guitar bass thing. That's yeah. a different one than, than the one he plays. You usually see him with. It's a different one than the San, Sanborn night music thing. That one has headstocks on the back of this one. Yeah. The one you usually see is like the Steinberger style. Oh, yeah. Overall, I really like this record, though. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It didn't blow me away, but I really... I'm I'm glad I actually, like, 
you know, I heard the interview before I listened to the record. Um, well, no, that's not true. I listened to the record uh, a couple of times this week. Then I heard the interview. And I guess my point is after listening to the interview, I appreciated the record more, I guess, is what I, what I would say. And some of it really reminds me of um, l- like 80s Zappa stuff on the Sinclair. And, uh, but I don't think there's like any Sinclair on here, right? It's, it's like all, it's all Elliot, which is just a mind blower. I, I like this way better than that Devil in the Drain record by Henry Kaiser. And that's not to take anything, anything away from Henry either, because he's got some amazing stuff, but like, and some of the other Elliot stuff I checked out for the first time, like some of the carbon stuff that came before this, like the album Fractal and that ISM there's two ISM records I checked out, both really cool. And that, uh, and that virtual stance record is really good too. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be digging into Elliot Sharp's discography. Nice. I've got some carbon stuff and I've got his, uh, his homestead records. They're different than this though. Yeah. Well, we're going to be doing some carbon too at some point. Yeah. We get into that a little bit next week. He's on, he's a, a guest again next week too. So yeah, that's awesome to have a, a double whammy of the E sharp. Yeah. Any dead wax, Ryan? Not on my copy. All right, then we're off to the ballot result. Ballot result. All right, man. I feel like, uh, this one has got to be chosen by you. I, if I'll, I'll quickly mention my favorite, um, I really liked actually Free Society as my favorite, um, but I think you likely preferred other tracks, right? I like that one. I think just based on the fact that he played that one on that show, maybe leads me to believe that that was maybe the, you know, the single or something that he was he was going with off this one. I really like the track Sink or Swim. Yeah, with uh, with. Uh, Elizabeth Fisher from Animal Slave on vocals. Yeah, let's go with that. Cool, man. So, Ryan, what's next week? Next week is a second Elliot Sharp record. It's SST-129. Elliot Sharp and Soldier String Quartet do Tessellation Row. And as you mentioned, Elliot's on again for us. Thank goodness. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.